0: Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 15. We're going to start in 15, but we're not going to end in 15. So the plan this morning is Mark 15, 42 through the end of chapter 16. And so at the outset, let me, let me say that we've come to the end. So this will be our last sermon in the Gospel of Mark. So it's a sad and exciting day at the same time. Um, let me just tell you, in, in two weeks, we're going to start a study in 1 Samuel. So you can start reading ahead. We'll be in 1 Samuel starting, uh, not next week, but the week after. So, so you can begin um, preparing for that. I'm excited about that. But so this morning, um, let, me just, let me just at the outset give you the main idea. The main idea of, of our passage is that Jesus was buried and then rose three days later. Okay, The, the resurrection of the Son of Man, that, that's the main idea of this passage. That's the main idea of the Gospel of Mark, the, the foundation of the Gospel truth. Um, all four Gospel accounts focus on the fact that the tomb was empty, that Jesus was raised. And so that's going to be the main point. So hopefully at the end of this, you walk away encouraged by the fact that the tomb was, in fact, empty. <clears throat> and so here's, here's the plan um, for today. We're going to start in Mark 14, 15, 42. We're going to read through verse 8 of chapter 16. And so most of you, after verse eight, there'll be a little break um, and some parenthetical marks. And so we're going to walk through Mark 15:42 through16:8, and then we're going to finish that. and then I'm going to read verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16. And then I'm actually going to tell you why I don't think that those verses were part of Mark's original gospel and shouldn't be included. Um, but that's at the end. Okay so you're going to have to stick with me until the end. If you want to know um, what I think about verses 9 through 20. But, but we'll read them all. But right now I'm just going to read um, 15, 42 through sixteen eight. So you can follow along. I'm going to begin in Mark 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, was who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and he went to Pilate. ...and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, Pilate asked him whether he was already dead. And when Pilate learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud... ...and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb... Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Chapter 16 verse 1 When the sabbath was past Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. And looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Verse five, and entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has not or he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love in order that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. I pray that we would be glad finding our joy in in your word, in you through your word for as many days as you appoint us life on this earth. And so, so meet us this morning, satisfy us this morning with your, with your word and with, with its pointing to your unfailing love for us in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. All right, so let's work through. So, so two, two basic sections there. The, the end of chapter 15, the burial of Jesus, is going to be the first point. Second, we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Verses one through eight of chapter sixteen, and then, like I said, thirdly, we'll look at the long ending of Mark, which is verses nine through twenty. So let's start first. Start with the burial of Jesus, beginning there in verses forty-two through forty-seven of chapter fifteen. So last week we stopped after verse forty-one, where Mark makes us aware he's Jesus has been crucified, and there's a group of women who, who we said are the faithful disciples who remained with Jesus, and they were there watching his crucifixion from a distance. And so Mark just points our attention to those women who saw him as he died and breathed his last. And then verse 42 picks up saying that the evening is approaching. So of the day of the crucifixion, the the day is ending. And Mark tells us it wasn't just any day, but there's something special or unique about that day. Verse 42, it was the day of preparation, which Mark tells us is the day before the Sabbath, which means that for the sake of, of Jesus' corpse on the cross, All preparations for burial had to be completed before the sun went down. It's it's a day of preparation. It wasn't preparation for Passover. This was preparation for the Sabbath. And so Jesus hanging on the cross, if if he was going to be taken down, it would have to be before sundown that night. Evening is approaching. He's got to be taken down. There's an urgency because if he's not taken down when the Sabbath starts, he's going to hang there. He, He can't be gotten down on the Sabbath. That's the Jewish observance of Sabbath. That's one thing they can't do. And so they, he would have just hung there, which would have only perpetuated the shame and, and disrespect that had already um, been, been thrown on Jesus as he hung there. But, but also, not to mention, that the scavengers would have probably begun to, to gather. Right? So, so they have to get this body down as evening is approaching. So Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, Mark tells us, which tells us that not every Jewish leader was, was anti-Jesus. right? Joseph is, is expecting the kingdom, looking for the kingdom of God. So this man, a powerful man, takes courage and he goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Now normally it would have been a family member, a brother or or a mother. Um, Mark doesn't say why. This wasn't Jesus' immediate family. They were probably too distraught. And so here's Joseph going to to step in and ask for the body of Jesus. Now normally the the Roman practice was to leave these bodies on the cross for for days. Sometimes the death took days. And so they'd hang for several days and then just be left indefinitely, as, as a sign of the power of the Roman, Roman authority. Um, but, but this Jewish custom, this is where these overlap, so that there's still Jewish custom as they're living under Roman rule, and Jewish custom is, it's, even though the worst of criminals, it is disrespectful to the land itself if, if they're not buried properly. So burial was this, this Jewish practice that must be done, and so the fate of Jesus' body, they, they said, we have to get him down to bury him. And so Joseph goes to Pilate because it was entirely dependent upon what Pilate said, whether Jesus could be taken down or not. That's why, that's why this, this man, Joseph, goes to Pilate asking for the body. Notice verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. As I said, some, some crucifixion took, took days. And so here, Pilate hears an, a request for the body of Jesus, and he says, He's dead already. It's just been a matter of hours, and, and now you're telling me that he's dead. And so look at what he does. I think it's significant after hearing that, he summons the centurion. Okay, you're asking for the body. Let me make sure he's really dead. That's what Pilate's doing. So he asks the centurion, he summons him and asks him, is he already dead? In verse 45, he learns from the centurion that he was dead. He granted the corpse to Jesus. Now, this is important because it confirms one fact, which we might say is clear, but some continue to cast down on it. But the fact is simply that Jesus is dead. And He's dead. For a Roman centurion, a man who had witnessed hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions, he knows a dead person when he sees a dead person. Right? He did, the Romans, this man especially, would not misdiagnose death. Oh, oh I was wrong, he wasn't dead. Right? That, that's not going to be the case here. So when Pilate asks him, is he really dead? We can say, when the centurion comes back and says, yes, he's dead, that Jesus was dead. and So it is nothing but a corpse there that's given to Joseph. And so for some to claim that Jesus faked his death, and right, that's what people say, he faked it, he wasn't really dead, that's ludicrous. And there's no evidence for that in any of the gospel accounts. The, the, the simple fact, I'll, 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 I'll say, the simple fact that there's so many different theories about whether or not Jesus was actually dead, that confirms that something had to be explained. Right? As I hear all these explanations, I think, well, the fact that people say it was the wrong tomb, or the disciples stole the body, or he wasn't actually dead, and so on and so forth, all these explanations... Simply make one thing clear, and that is the tomb was empty, and they had to think of a reason why. So the fact that so many people, what, what was it? What was it? They have to think of a reason to logically explain an empty tomb, which I say just says the tomb was empty. In this account, Mark wants us to know quite simply that Jesus was dead and was given a corpse. So then looking at verse 46, upon receiving this body of Jesus, Joseph purchased a linen shroud... And he took him down from the cross, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. Now, practice, it, it's not said, but, but most people will, will assume that, that part of this process of taking down and wrapping the shroud is, is actually a washing of, away of the body, a washing away of, of the, the filth. And so it's this purity ritual where they would wrap them, of the clean corpse in the shroud. So that, that's probably what Joseph does here, and lays him in a tomb that he rolled a stone against. And so Joseph here, Joseph of Arimathea, is is simply following traditional Jewish burial procedures. Body would have been washed and wrapped in linen cloth with spices to cover the stench of decomposition. That's what the ladies are going to do later also. So he prepares the body for burial, and that's all Mark says. Then in verse 47, so so that's the the role of Mark, or the role of Joseph ends, and Mark tells us in verse 47 Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Okay, so, so that's how he ends. We know these ladies are going to have a significant role to play in a minute. Okay, we'll get there in a moment. And that role is dependent on them knowing. So they saw where he was laid. Right? That simply says they're not going to the wrong tomb. They saw where he was laid. I think Mark wants us to know that. But before, just stop here and pause and think about as chapter 15 closes. With this scene, the tragedy of Jesus' ministry seems complete. Right? The hero is dead, his disciples have fled. And he's buried only through the piety and generosity of this man, Joseph. While there are a few women disciples who are looking on helplessly. So so do you feel that the the tragedy of the scene, we should not pass too quickly to the resurrection scene, but should linger for a while here in this narrative death, burial, absorbing the full force of it all. Jesus was dead. And his disciples, they, they, they couldn't imagine that he had died. I mean, it's Luke's record of On the Road to Emmaus. They, they're, they're distraught. They said, Didn't you hear what happened? Said, We thought he was the Messiah. And we're going to say, Well, did you not get it? How, how did you not get it? But, but here, the, the death of Jesus would have been crushing to his disciples. To these ladies, there was Jesus crucified, dead and buried. There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world, by darkness slain. And then just like that, the screen fades to black, and what appears to be a tragic. Ending. The scene closes. Scene out. Just let it rest there. That the hero is dead. But then that leads us to the next section. We don't want to stay there too long. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 16, the resurrection, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, which means the Sabbath ended at sundown on the Saturday night. So so sundown on, on Friday to sundown on Saturday. That was the Sabbath. So as soon as the sun goes down on Saturday night, the Sabbath was passed. And so these three women, they go and they buy spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. They couldn't do this the day before because it's a Sabbath. So as soon as Sabbath is over, they, they go and get spices. Now obviously they couldn't buy their spices on the Sabbath. So when it's over, they go and they buy the spices. And then they can't do anything that night because now it's dark. By the time they get the spices, so they're going to wait until the early the next morning, which is why verse 2 says, Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Okay, so they've got their spices. They're going to the tomb with their spices to anoint Jesus. And as they're going, now remember, they know where they're going. They're not going to be mistaken identity with this tomb. They know where they're going. As they're going, they realize there's going to be a problem. They say, who will roll away the stone for us? They know that the tomb that he's put in, there's a stone over it. Who's going to roll away the tomb? The stone from the tomb. So they're playing. They want to, they want to get inside. they got spices to anoint the body, which was part of the burial process, and, and they don't know how they're going to get in. Which shows, I think we, it's safe to assume, the last thing that these ladies were expecting was a resurrection. And they're going to the tomb to, to anoint a dead body. And they're not even thinking about a resurrection. It's the furthest thing from their mind as they go. And so verse 4, looking up... As they're contemplating, okay, we're going to have a problem, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, let me point this out, because this, I found this fascinating this, this week as I read this, but the stone being rolled away was not necessary for the resurrection. Okay, a lot of times we think, oh, it was rolled away so then Jesus could come out. That, that wasn't the purpose the stone was rolled away not for the benefit of Jesus. It wasn't necessary. I mean, think about the, in Luke 24 and in John 20, there are these post-resurrection appearances where the disciples are meeting, and what happens? Jesus just shows up. And so he's walking through walls. It says the disciples had locked the door where they were, and Jesus showed up in their midst, which tells us the resurrected Jesus can walk right through walls, which tells us that, that a, a large stone isn't going to keep him in the tomb. And so the rolled-away stone is not for the, the sake of Jesus coming out. I mean, further evidence, Matthew 28, Matthew says that it's in an earthquake that moved the stone away. right? But even there, when the stone's rolled away, Jesus doesn't walk, around, walk out. There's people there, they see the stone moved away, and then it's empty. Right? So the moving of the stone is not for the sake of Jesus coming out. So the question becomes, well, why was it rolled away? What's the purpose? And I would say it's for the ladies. It's for the purpose of those who come to the tomb. It's for the disciples, for the eyewitnesses, would then later say, I saw the tomb. The stone was rolled away. I actually walked in and saw that there was no body. I saw the empty tomb. His body wasn't there. I mean, think about it. if the stone's not rolled away. Pff, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And by now it's been taken away. That, that wasn't true. That's not a true story. It wasn't really gone. But no, the stone was already, and they walked right into where the body just laid. And so the rolled away stone confirms the eyewitness's testimony. The ladies, they see the stone rolled, rolled back and when they finally get inside the tomb, they walk in, they see an angel or a young man clothed in white sitting down and they're alarmed, they're shocked, they're afraid. To which the angel responds, this messenger from God, verse 6, he says, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. Look at this place where they laid him, he is not here. Now it's easy for us to, to over-read, or to read over these words. But but think about the situation, think about the significance of this messenger, this young man. Think about these ladies, they walk in, they don't see the body of Jesus, what do they know? What do they know if this young man is not there, this messenger from God, this divine messenger? All they know is it's empty and Jesus is gone, and then the questions probably start to arise, what happened? Let's look for footprints. What happened? Why is there not a body here? And so they could not rightly interpret what had happened if God's revelation had not accompanied this act. The messenger is there who rightly interprets what happened. They needed God's interpretation of what had taken place. So here this messenger tells them, he's not here. He has actually risen. Right? That's God interpreting the empty tomb for them. One commentator puts it this way. The empty tomb alone is not proof of the resurrection. It only invites the question what happened to the body of Jesus? Through the centuries, skeptics have answered in a variety of ways. The disciples took the body, the Jewish or the Roman authorities took possession of it, the women went to the wrong tomb. Jesus somehow survived and escaped the tomb. These claims are all answered decisively by God's own explanation delivered through this messenger. He was raised. God declared what happened. We don't need anyone else's testimony. The great reversal had taken place. These ladies, the first witnesses to arrive and see this empty tomb, God declares through his messenger, the tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the dead. The body you came to see, the corpse that you came to anoint is not here. Jesus isn't here. He is actually alive. And after this message, the the messenger gives them orders. Verse 7, but go. Don't stay here. Go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. Did you notice that? Tell, tell all the disciples, tell his disciples, and, and tell Peter also that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. Now this is all the way back in, in Mark 14 when Jesus predicted the falling away of the disciples and Peter. In 14, he says, you're going to all fall away, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But in fourteen twenty eight Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's what he's referring to. The the messenger saying, He told you he's going to be raised and then go to Galilee. So go to Galilee. That's where he's going to meet you. And so the angel tells the woman, Convey that message to the disciples and to Peter. Tell the disciples, he says. And don't forget Peter. Be sure you tell Peter that the weeping, downcast, betraying Peter, make sure he hears to go to Galilee too. Be sure and tell Peter that, that he's still in, he's still on the team. Make sure Peter hears this. His unfaithfulness hasn't altered the faithfulness of his Lord. Tell Peter. Tell him, go to Galilee, and there they will see, not a messenger, there they will see the risen Christ. So get to Galilee and get on it. Tell him. And so upon hearing this news, look at verse 8, the women's response. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And now we know from other gospel accounts, these ladies do eventually go and tell. Right? But here, all Mark says is they go away and they're afraid, and they didn't tell anyone. So Mark records that their, their fear, is, is their sense of fear is, is what Mark leaves us with. They leave their encounter with the angel with fear and trembling. and So having had this personal encounter with a messenger from God and, and a life-changing, history-changing message of resurrection... Verse 8 leaves us wondering. So they're afraid and they do not go tell anyone. Well, would these, would these women, these faithful disciples, would they go and tell? So if Mark just, just leaves us hanging there. So there is verse 8, what, what someone call the, the ending of Mark. Curtain closed. End of story. Which so I think it's obvious. Hopefully you feel this. It's obvious why a lot of people take issue with Mark's gospel actually ending at verse 8. Do you feel that? What a bad ending. Just an abrupt ending. I mean, mean, they will say every other gospel account has a a, a post-resurrection encounter where Jesus meets with at least someone. So surely Mark meant for his gospel to end with with a resurrection appearance or something. Why would Mark end his gospel this way? Let me give you a few reasons why I think it's probable, as strange as it seems, that this is the way that Mark intended to end his gospel. So I do think, I think Mark 8 is the last verse of Mark's written gospel. And so I'm going to give you the reasons why. First reason, the beginning of Mark. I think the beginning of Mark is a reason. So, so if we're thinking about, oh, well, it doesn't end like other gospels. Well, Mark's gospel doesn't begin like other gospels either. Have you ever noticed that, that Mark is never read on a Christmas Eve service? <laughs> why? What's missing from the gospel of Mark? The entire birth narrative, all the events surrounding his birth, it's not in Mark. It's as if, here comes the verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God, and there was John, a voice crying in the wilderness, popped on the scene, John the Baptist, preparing the way of Jesus. And then the first mention of Jesus is, and he was baptized by John. Right? So it's an abrupt ending, not a traditional beginning, an abrupt beginning, different from all the others. And so why can't his gospel end different from all the others, right? So, so I think the abruptness of Jesus shows up, he's off the scene, and, and it ends. I don't think that's unfathomable. Second reason, the the fear theme or the astonishment theme. I'm going to quote commentator here. He writes, in point of fact, the present ending of Mark, there in verse 8, is thoroughly consistent with the motifs of astonishment and fear developed throughout the gospel. These motifs express the manner in which Mark understands the events of Jesus' life. In verse 8, the evangelist terminates his account of the good news concerning Jesus by sounding the note." by which he has characterized all the aspects of Jesus' activity. His healings, his miracles, his teachings, the journey to Jerusalem. The account of the empty tomb is soul-shaking, and to convey this impression, Mark describes in the most meaningful language the utter amazement and overwhelming feeling of these women. In other words, okay, long story short, this closing, instead of being quite unlikely, it is actually a likely marking ending. Right? Everything else in the life and ministry of Jesus is, is this fear and amazement. Every aspect. That the characters, the human characters are, are struck with fear and awe. They encountered a mighty act of God and they could not believe it. And they could only go away in fear. And So, so it, it's fitting with the, this, this theme that runs throughout for Mark to just end there. Number three, third reason, this is my last reason. I think one of the most common, or not common, most convincing This ending leaves the reader confronted by the witness of the empty tomb, and so we read and we encounter it, and and there's a lingering question: What's next? What's next? As readers, when we come to this abrupt ending, we're left wanting more. And I think that by ending this way, Mark is saying, "Reader, it's on you. The tomb is empty. You've been given a command. What are you going to do?" I think I think Mark leaves this this way so that we might feel the weight of the question. I mean, it says Mark is as if Mark is saying, as readers, you've seen and heard all that I've told you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about this man, about his life, his teaching, his healing, his suffering, his death. But last, and certainly not least, you have seen the empty tomb. How will you respond, reader? I, mean, I don't think that's unlikely of Mark to end it with just this lingering so that we are left, his earlier readers and us, left thinking, okay, he's risen, and I have a job to do. I've got a commission, I've got to go tell everyone about the empty tomb, about the Son of Man, who's not dead anymore. And so it puts the onus on us and urges us to respond. And so I, I think that's a possible and even likely ending for Mark. Well, let, me, let me move on to this last section. Let me read verses 9 through 20. You can follow along as I read. And so I'm going to read this longer ending, and then I'm going to argue, give you evidence against, why I, against this longer ending being original. Okay, so so let me just say, this week I I read more about these verses than I've probably read about any verses, right? So so there's tons of debate around this. When When I started the week, I thought, how could anyone believe that these are part of the original, right? Now I'm at the point where I heard, I read lots of articles arguing convincingly that these should be included. So I don't, I still don't believe them, but at least I say, oh, I can see the reasoning, Okay, so if, if you, maybe your Bible doesn't have any footnotes, and you say, well, why wouldn't I consider this? Right? This, this is a complicated issue, and I'm happy to, um, to disagree with you over this. Okay? This is not an issue to break fellowship over or anything like that. Okay? So hear me say that. I, I hold my position loosely. All right? there, there are some issues that it's, that it's wise to hold loosely. Like if you ask me up the end times, right, that's a loose, loose topic. But, so, so that's here. And so let me, I'm going to argue why I I don't think that this is part of the original. But let me read the verses first. So so look down verses 9 through 20 of, of Mark. Verse 9, now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and she told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Verse 12 After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God." And they went out and preached everywhere the while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So that's the longer ending. So now you know that's the longer ending of Mark. Now let me just tell you, here's the reasons why I don't think it's likely that this was part, definitely not part of Mark's writing, but but I don't think even part of the the gospel of, of Mark. First reason, the footnote. Okay, the footnote. So if you look in your Bibles, most of you, I I think, now I looked at a King James Version that didn't have anything marking out 9 through 20, but I talked to someone this morning who said there, King James had marked it out. So so most of your versions probably have a footnote there or at least a a space, something that marks this out and then will probably say something like some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20 or the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20 or maybe it says nothing, okay, but... But the footnote is the number one reason why I, I don't think this is part of it. Now, here's, here's briefly, and, and again, if I say anything that, that piques your interest or, or maybe causes you concern, come talk to me and I have a number of sources I can give you, books and chapters and all kinds of things to, to read. But here's how the New Testament works. There, there are copies and copies and copies and copies, over 5,600 copies. They're called manuscripts. And... By the way, the, the, the evidence of the, for the New Testament is far greater than any other ancient litter, piece of literature. I mean, it, it dwarfs the, the, the competition by, by miles. Um, but, but the two earliest manuscripts. So, so there's, there's thousands of, of manuscripts, these pieces, these fragments of the New Testament that have been gathered and, and pieced together to, to have to give us the New Testament, and it's actually a, a very highly reliable. New Testament, because of what's called form criticism, or, or putting together and comparing to see, oh, well this doesn't have this, this doesn't have this, well let's see the other, man. and so there's thousands and thousands that you can put together and decide what, what we have in the original. And so the two earliest manuscripts do not have these verses. Okay, So there's two that, that, are, that are older and earlier than any of them, and they do not have verses 9 through 20. And so for some, for many of the translation committees, they say, well that's evidence enough. So they say, case closed, the earliest don't have it, right? T- typically, the earliest are going to be the most reliable, right? That makes sense. So the earliest don't have it. But to be, to be fair, right, others will not be convinced, but will point to the fact that, that while the two earliest don't have those verses, there are scores of early, not earliest, but early copies that do have it, hundreds that do, in fact, contain it. So they say, no, 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 the overwhelming majority is that they do, so, so that, overwe- that overweighs the earliest, they also pointed to the fact that some of the earliest church fathers, which is the, the generation immediately preceding the, the apostles, they reference this longer ending as part of Scripture. So there's debate, okay? But, but, but let, me, let, me, let me tell you, at this point, let me just make this point. This, this issue here, okay? Th- there's this place and one other place in the New Testament where this is an issue. There are only two passages that have this kind of... of of disc- discrepancy, okay. So that's pretty remarkable. Right now, of the entire New Testament, there are two passages that that this issue comes up. There's this one, and then there's the woman caught in adultery in John in John seven fifty three through eight eleven. That's the other passage, and you'll see the same same footnotes or same same um, yes yeah, same markings separating that passage. There's only two in the whole New Testament. What's even more encouraging is that from the even more encouraging the fact that there's only two is the fact that, that these don't affect major doctrinal teachings. Right? So if you think about the woman caught in adultery, that is a biblical passage saying, let him without sin cast the first stone. And that's a biblical teaching. Right? So, so it doesn't affect anything. Now I'll say more about snakes and poison in a minute because I'm sure that's your thing. Well, what, that's a major doctrinal issue. And I'll say that in a minute. But, but, but this is, this is the, the issue where the, the translation committee's see enough evidence to say, well, we're going to just put this out here and tell them the earliest don't have that. Next reason, moving on. Style and vocabulary. I mean, hopefully, even as I read that, as we read through that, there's a change in voice. It just reads differently. I mean, maybe that's subjective, but it just comes across weird, different. Style and vocabulary are not the same here as in the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So if you read some of, some of the scholars, they'll say language and vocabulary here is used here and nowhere else in Mark's Gospel, which shows a clear change in author. Another reason, awkward transition. So if you see there in verse 9, Mary Magdalene is mentioned as the first one Jesus appeared to on the first day of the week, when earlier in verses 1 through 8, right, Mary Magdalene was there, but there were two others there. So this is an awkward transition, whereas verse 8, it talks about these women, the, the focus is on them. They, they were afraid. And then all of a sudden, verse 9, the subject changes to Jesus. And it's an awkward translation, transition. It's a strange shift. And notice there, Mary Magdalene is identified as the one who had seven demons cast out. Which the author seems to be assuming that, that we've heard of that. When Mark has made no mention of a demon being cast, seven demons cast out of Mary Magdalene. But the author, the, whoever wrote that, assumed, yeah, you, you know Mary Magdalene, the one who had seven demons cast out? Mark never mentioned that encounter. In in fact, Mary was first brought up in in Mark 15, verse 40. And then lastly, a patchwork ending. Much of this longer ending seems to be a compilation of a post-resurrection appearances that come from other gospels. So look at verses 9 and 11. If if you write down John 20, 11 through 18, John 20 has an appearance to Mary Magdalene. It seems like the authors just you summarizing what happened there in John 20. Or verses 12 through 13, I mentioned earlier, the road to Emmaus that Luke records in in Luke 24 seems to be the summary summarized in verses 12 and 11. And then verses 14 through 16 seem to form some some version of the Great Commission. And so the evidence of the actual verses themselves seem to confirm that someone other than Mark came along and thought, this ending is, is lacking, so I'm going to take the other gospel accounts of the endings and I'm going to just summarize what happened. So that there's, there's a fitting ending or a correct ending. And so it's, it's just a patchwork ending, which, which is why I'm convinced that Mark planned on ending this gospel in verse 8. Now, a word about snakes as we close. I'll, I'll say a word about snakes, then three quick, and are quick, I promise, applications. Okay, so the word about snakes and poison. Much of the um, obviously, verses 17 and 18 are the most confusing of this ending. So when you hear snake handling, right, you think West Virginia or Kentucky, right, maybe some of you have been there before, right, and this is where, right, this is where they get that. We're going to bring snakes into our church just to prove our faith because the Bible says that we can be bit and not die, or we can drink poison and not die, right? Many of them do die, right? So instead of a evidence of their faith, it actually proves lack faith in their paradigm, right, but... This is a dangerous practice to take from, from this passage, right? Because of the issues, to, to build a whole theology or practice in light of this, that's dangerous. But secondly, it's also dangerous because of the rest of the New Testament. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. There's one passage that mentions this. And we can't take this as, as regulative when it's just a, a, a passing mention. So, the point of these verses in this passage... Right? So, so if, we, if we say, okay, let, let's go with this. What, what is this passage teaching? These, these supernatural signs that include the, the snake handling and the drinking of poison, they were simply to verify the people of God among the, the watching world. Right? So the signs accompany the disciples as they go forward. So, so it's, it's a missional giving of the signs. So as you go, these, these supernatural things are going to happen so that those will recognize, oh, wait, these men are from God. And that's the whole point of these signs, they took signs with these signs, took place with regularity among the disciples. Right? Just read the book of Acts. Right? These supernatural signs accompany the preaching of the gospel and the mission of the disciples and apostles. I mean, the most obvious being Paul in Acts 28 on Malta. Remember, they start a fire, and then a viper comes out and bites Paul. And what happens when he first is bitten? What do the people say? He's a criminal. He's being judged. The, the viper bit him. He's going to die. They see he doesn't die. What happens? They change their mind. What do they say? He's a God. We better listen to him. right? Do you see how that evidence of this miraculous sign, he, everyone dies from that. This man did not He must be God, a God, unlike us. And so, so this sign raised the ears of the, the listeners. It was a supernatural, miraculous sign that accompanied the preaching of the gospel. The, the sign affirmed the messenger and the message. And so, so all that comes around, to, to have a church service filled with snakes and poison misses the point. Right? It misses the whole point. of The missional aspect. It's to be done, right? It's not to be done, so hear me say, but, but even if you want to say it's to be done, it's to be done among non-believers, not among the church. But I'd say that the supernatural, the, the abnormal time frame of the book of Acts is why these signs accompany it. I don't think it's it's still time, right? We don't don't need any snakes. Don't bring them. (laughs) So here, so here the the last three applications, and and I do, I I mean they're they're quick. First, the resurrection of Christ. Christ was indeed raised. The resurrection is the resurrection because it was from the dead. To downplay the death or the resurrection is to distort, distort the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. The foundation of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. Number, number of of applications for us there, but but we'll stop there. The resurrection of Christ. Second application, his word is true. His word is true, the word of Jesus. Remember, he said, I'm going to be raised and I'm going to Galilee. That's exactly what happens. The resurrection confirms the final and greatest prediction of Jesus. The temple was raised. Just like he said, and the temple went to Galilee to meet with his disciples. His word was true, and, and it remains true today. And then thirdly, final application, the ending of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The ending. So, so this is the ending of the gospel of the Son of God. Just like Mark's gospel begins with the words of the beginning of the gospel, of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's Mark one. 1. It ends here with the, with the account of the resurrection of the Son of God, the resurrection that, that declares him to be The Son of God. So you have the beginning and the ending of Mark's Gospel. And everything in between is Mark's effort to prove to you, to prove to me, to his readers that Jesus is the Son of God. The one who came, who suffered, who died, and who was raised three days after. And so the last application for us from Mark's Gospel is simply to believe that Jesus is who Mark said he was. To believe the eyewitness testimony of the Gospel writer. And then to live our lives accordingly. Let's pray as we close.